Crude Audacity Podcast. Listening to the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. I am Catherine Mills, and before we begin today, wherever you are listening from, go ahead and leave us a rate and review. And if you happen to be tuned in on YouTube, go ahead and click that little subscribe button for me. That way you can stay up to date on all things oil, energy, and of course the crude audacity. So for today's topic, ladies and gentlemen. It occurred to me that the energy industry, the oil and gas industry, is in a period of creative destruction. Many might not understand from that term. Creative destruction is the process by which an industry revolutionizes from the inside out due to one external measure or another. COVID, Saudi versus Russia, uh, transitional energy, alternative energy. We are being hit constantly, and now is the opportunity to pivot. And as you know, on the last few episodes, I have been calling for a maverick, a thought leader, someone who is an innovator, thinking outside the box. And industry should let leadership start rising through the ranks because we need new ideas. No longer can your pitch include a restructure of an LOS, or let's say you're chasing behind pipe, because that's no longer an idea, that's a copy. So as if the heavens have opened, I have found an oil field team who is navigating this pivot like a champ rising through the ashes and redefining the energy industry. So today, ladies and gentlemen, I sit down with Joanna Ostrom of Transitional Energy, and we are going to talk geothermal. <laughs> Joanna, welcome to the Crude Audacity. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Thank you so much. I am so excited for this conversation. You know, in my intro, I know <laughs> I kind of told you, but I am just looking for someone who's doing something different, and your team is doing something different. I mean, I hope everyone listens to this episode and is galvanized and has ideas and starts thinking about the basics and how to change this industry and continue this creative destruction. So before we go into everything that you guys are doing, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get into oil and energy? How are you in the ranks that you are now? And what has been your experience? Yeah, thanks for that intro. Um, yeah, so my history, I went to school at Montana Tech. That's uh, a pretty common oil and gas school. I actually got a geological engineering degree right out of college. And one of my first internships was at a mine, a gold mine in Nevada. And I was like, God, I just love, I love geology. I love the engineering side. And um, I was excited about mining. And then I had an opportunity to have an internship with Noble Energy my last summer. And I was like, you know, what's even cooler than mining 
uh, gold is getting oil and gas out of the ground. So um, they gave me an offer right out of school and I started with them as a geologist, actually. I think they only read the first part of my degree. So I worked um, as a geologist for them for a couple years um, in their rotational program. And then, uh, as you might know, working in the oil field, right, geologists and engineers approach problems differently and kind of see the, the world differently. And we need both in the oil and gas industry, but my brain was definitely more of the engineering side. I worked with some old exploration geologists and they could like think in 4D in space <laughs> at the same time to do exploration geology, which I was like, that is awesome, but that is not how my brain works. So um, switched into engineering and I did a, a variety of different types, uh, production engineering, completion engineering there, um, worked on some projects in Texas and Oklahoma, and then really spent probably the bulk of my time there working the DJ Basin. So it was there when, you know, the first horizontal wells were first drilled in the DJ Basin outside of Denver. So that was exciting. We were like, what are these horizontal wells that people are drilling? <laughs> Maybe we should try that. So uh, worked on the Gemini horizontal that we drilled at Noble, which was exciting, kind of kicked off a lot of the horizontal development kind of in the, in the middle of the DJ. So that was fun. And then um, about 2014, right before uh, the oil price tanked, I got an opp a job opportunity to work uh, for SM Energy out of Billings, Montana. So it was an opportunity to get closer to home, have in-laws around, uh, around the kids. So that was nice. Worked uh, the Bakken as a reservoir and reserves engineer for a couple years. Yeah. And then 2017, they closed that office uh, and about half of us moved back to Denver. Um, and then when I got back to Denver, I was like, hmm, what do I, who, who do I really want to work for? What, what would be something exciting and new for me to try? And so that's why I um, had the opportunity to work at Extraction Oil and Gas through some of the uh, network I had built up at Noble. And that was a fun company. I just started there right after they had their IPO, just okay. a few months after. So it's very much like a startup feel when we yeah. first got there. Um, and extraction oil and gas, any kind of DJ basin operator knows they have really great acreage, but it's right underneath people's homes. So um, <laughs> it was an uh, interesting time there. I worked as an asset development engineer um, there for a couple of years and then transitioned into the regulatory uh, manager role, um, kind of my last role there, which was interesting because that was right after SB 181 had passed and there was all the local rulemaking and um, as a urban operator, we were always asked to come in and kind of provide feedback on rules, whether they listen to us or not was one thing. But um, so that was fun. We had a lot of city council meetings where, you know, people just loved us there. Actually, most of the time they really didn't. But so it was um, it was a good opportunity to, you know, really understand rulemaking and how that works. Um and got some exposure to multiple different municipalities and counties there. So um, they, you know, filed for bankruptcy a few months ago. So uh, I'm no longer in action. But thankfully, I had through my network, I knew some folks that had started up a company that was looking at, you know, taking waste streams from oil and gas wells and figuring out how, how to turn those into profit streams. Um, so... I had an old friend that I had worked with at Noble and um, we had talked about, you know, starting a geothermal energy company utilizing existing oil and gas well bores because what that's, you know, produces a lot of hot water. And so how can you how can you monetize that and create electricity from it? So. So yeah, I had the opportunity to jump on board the startup um, and 2020 has been a ride for us all. <laughs> 
Well, that is awesome. So before we go into all these questions I have, because I'm fascinated by this, let's talk about transitional energy. Because as you and I were discussing earlier, transitional energy could be a great thing to, let's say, a activist group who wants to take down oil and energy, or it could be a very scary thing to oil field workers who think that their jobs are being compromised or heck, even just engineers, you know, it could be green masking. It's got the word transitional has a lot of emotion behind it. And I'm not sure if you watched the recent debate between Biden and Trump, but I was very focused on their uh, energy policy and they both suck. They, uh, they don't even know what's going on. So yeah. when you talk about transitional energy, your time in the oil field, what did you notice? What what was the sort of buzz around the word transitional? Yeah, and how we approach the word transitional at our company is um, where there's a new energy space that we're trying to develop, which is using existing oil and gas wells that are producing hydrocarbons and water and transitioning them into renewable geothermal power producers. So it's this transitional space between fossil fuels, all the bad things that, you know, green investors or ESG investors don't want to hear anything about and transitioning them into geothermal renewable power producers so that all these, you know, aggressive renewable energy goals can be met. But we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We can still use existing oil and gas wells, um, to reach these goals and you know some hydrocarbons may or may not be produced but that's not the goal the goal is to produce um yeah hot water for renewable energy Mm -hmm. so from the public's perspective do you see transitional energy as uh just a a fight that we can never win even with something as innovative as this where we are connecting the two sources because historically Oil and energy, or excuse me, oil and transitional energy, alternative energy, has always been interconnected. And people don't want to recognize that. They don't want to talk about impact. But your positioning here with transitional energy, which is literally a bridge there, still working on that relationship. So kind of what are your thoughts along those lines? Yeah, I think it's... um it's time for the oil and gas industry to think that, you know, the old way of doing things, um, how oil and gas has been produced over the years, we need to think about the future and kind of where things are going uh, politically and socially in the world. And while we're never going to get away from hydrocarbons, we need them for everything we do. Um, we also need to think about how we can um, how we can have less impact on the environment and how we can use existing resources and energy sources that are abundant, just as abundant as um, oil and gas. And how can we produce electricity that maybe has less of an of a environmental footprint? I love that. So geothermal, I, people almost forget about it sometimes, but it's so neat. You know, you hear about wind and solar and these big wind farms and people are putting those in, but there've been a lot of advancements in the geothermal space. So where do you see the future of this portion of the spectrum going? Cause they all sort of, you know, they grow on each other over time. Yeah, totally. I was just looking up some statistics actually before we met and um, I found this, the DOE puts out a report every year and they said that the thermal resource in the Earth's surface contains 50,000 times more energy than all the oil and gas resources in the world. 
So geothermal energy, it's just, there's a lot of heat in the earth and, Mm -hmm. and we produce it through a various means, but one of which is oil and gas wells. And if there's any way that we can somehow turn that thermal heat or thermal energy into electricity, I mean, we're just throwing away a resource um, that's produced all the time. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense to try and, you know, try and make clean electricity that's truly baseload. So the issue with um, wind and solar is that, you know, it only works when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing. Whereas oil and gas wells, we all know they have like 95% uptime if you're doing the, <laughs> if you're doing your business right, right? So, and you can scale it. You can turn your pump on so you can produce more or slow your pump down, which can mirror, you know, what the what the electrical, electrical grid needs for power generation. So geothermal has been pretty much ignored up till now as a major energy source because it's been pretty high risk and pretty expensive. And a lot of that has to do, you know, any exploration geologist that works offshore will know you, they'll tell you like, if you get one well out of three that's successful, then you're a gigantic success, right? You're going to win wildcatter of the year. And the same is sort of true for geothermal, right? You have to explore for these super hot, hot water. And plus when you're drilling super hot or super deep, the technology just hasn't been there to, to do that until recently. And then, you know, traditional geothermal has used the, like the steam of the water itself to turn the turbine to create electricity. Mm -hmm. Well, in the past, you know, 10 years, organic Rankine cycle engines or binary cycle engines have really improved their efficiency. So you're able to use much cooler temperature water to create uh, more electrons than you were in the past. So geothermal technology has really improved. And I think of it a lot like the oil and gas industry, you know. We started drilling horizontal wells. We weren't very good at it. <laughs> we couldn't stay in zone. Yeah, we didn't know how to frack. All the crazy, you know, there's crazy stories about pe- what people would throw down hole, including like nuclear, uh, <laughs> you know, right? They would they do crazy things with fracks. Yeah. Um, so much like geothermal, there hasn't been a lot of time and money spent on making this, the technology get better. But in the past, you know, five or 10 years, it really has improved. And there's a lot of new companies coming out that are trying all sorts of different things, um, enhanced geothermal systems. They're using the heat of the earth like a radiator. So there's some really cool um, technology that's occurring right now in the geothermal space. I actually heard that one of the more innovative parts of geothermal was the idea of utilizing horizontal wells, uh, not oil wells, just, you know, their normal well bore size, which is nothing compared to what uh, you see out in the oil field. But it, it was apparently a very re- revolutionary conversation at one point because they were like, well, no, we just we go vertical. It's super easy. And <laughs> I love it. I love how well it's it's connecting here. What you said was very interesting, though, about baseload. So that's always been my argument with alternatives. It's not that there's no place for them. It's not that the oil industry is fighting them. It's that they don't support baseload. So geothermal does? Yeah, so that's one of the really neat selling points about geothermal is it's much like a natural gas powered uh, plant or or nuclear, right? It's on all the time. But what's nice about it is that it's renewable and it doesn't have a waste stream. So yeah. we're just producing hot water and injecting it back in. And that turns a binary cycle engine that has a working fluid that's just a, it's just a closed loop system. So there's basically no emissions um, and it's on all the time, right? So like I said, 
just before it's it's base load it's on all the time so it's a nice complement to wind and solar which you know we're not getting away from wind and solar wind and solar has a has a great place in in the energy mix um but as we saw in California just recently with the brownouts um, and Gav, Gav, what is it? Governor Gavin Newsom was very upset, sent a letter to all the power producers and was like, come on, guys, what are you doing? You're not giving us consistent power. And then, um, well, and I thought the Geothermal Resource Council sent him a letter back and he and said that, oh, all of our geothermal power producer or power plants were running at 100 percent uptime during this, <laughs> during the brownouts. So um, really just shifting the grid to more baseload power was really would just be good for everyone. Another example is a lot of, you know, we've had fires and smoke. Yeah. We've been dealing with it. California obviously has been dealing with it, the Pacific Northwest. And all that ash that's been falling in the air is covering up all the solar panels. And so there are just inherent problems with um, wind and solar. And not that they can't be fixed or alleviated, but you need a complement, which is a baseload power source. I kind of love it. You know, it's triggering the reduce, reuse, recycle that we learned as kids. And our parents thought we were absolutely insane. And then it became very mainstream, very normal. You know, it started in school and moved its way up. And in this particular case, we'll let you get into all the details because, I, again, it's just so flipping cool. But we have an existing source of energy. Let's call them some stripper wells. So, you know, they dance around a little bit. You're reducing an existing, you're utilizing a waste stream, and then you're keeping it uh, consecutively going which is just recycling it. That's brilliant. So can you please go into some epic detail about how you guys are turning waste streams into cash flow options? Yeah, so like you said, there's a lot of stripper wells, right? I think yeah. as, as all the old vertical wells are aging and operators are like, you know, they're reaching the point where the wells just aren't economic to run anymore. The OPEX costs are just too high and now they've got just so many wells are peeing every year. That's a big problem. And it's a liability for a lot of um, states also. So the state of Colorado has an orphan well list that's quite extensive. And so what we're trying to say is, hey, these all this capital that people sunk into the ground, it doesn't need to be just plugged and abandoned and left or maybe for a house to be built on it 50 <laughs> years from now or something. Um, why don't we use the existing heat resource that is in the ground and, like I said, create a baseload power for it? So... Um, you know, the other side of this, it's not just oil and gas going well. There's things that can be done in the geothermal space. And I know how to produce hot fluids. I've been doing that my whole career. Mm -hmm. The other piece that we've really come to understand that's pivotal about this business model is understanding the power markets, right? So not everywhere is the power um, power market conducive to getting the kind of uh, power purchase agreement rates or the power rates that you need. So though there are oil and gas wells spread across, you know, a lot of the United States and other countries, um, not everywhere is it makes sense to make uh, renewable energy or are you going to get the rates that you need. So it's being close to load centers um, and it's understanding where there are aggressive renewable energy goals that, um, you know, the consumer needs a needs a solution for this, uh, these goals that they've set and mm -hmm. wind and solar and battery just aren't going to get them there. So it's kind of a convergence of not just oil and gas knowledge, but understanding power marketing um, that we found is really key to to kind of transition um, oil and gas well, well bores. So not every formation, producing formation, is going to qualify for this. You really need, what kind of water cut do y'all typically like seek 
Really? Yeah. So if you think back, back in the conventional oil and gas well days, those are the kind of wells we need. So like sandstones that produce a lot of water, we need lots of porosity and permeability to produce a lot of flow. Mm -hmm. So you need a basically a minimum temperature of 150 degrees up to 250 degrees for these um, organic Rankin cycle engines. And then you need, you know, upwards of 5,000 barrels of water per day uh, produced. Oil will work too, but it doesn't, um, it's not as conductive for heat as water is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 100% water cut is the best we can get. um, And you need, you need a hefty flow rate. So you need consistently 5,000, upwards of 5,000 barrels of water per day. So think of like the old water floods that we may or may not have worked on in the first of our career, right? (laughs) It's those kind of um, wells that we're looking at. Um, You can, of course, put them on, um, you know, new horizontally fracked wells that are producing a ton of fluid, but there's such a decline rate in those wells, as we all know, that um, you won't have consistent uh, energy production. So we're Mm -hmm. looking at like wells that you don't need to frack, basically. So if you have to frack the well, that means it probably won't work. Interesting. So it's kind of, it's, it's an interesting perspective from an investment side. Are are you talking to oil investors? Or are you talking to geothermal investors? Because although we are fully on the energy spectrum, it's amazing how little they talk. We're integrated, but we don't really talk about innovation ideas together. So how are those conversations going? Yeah, it's a transitional space, right? Well, <laughs> That's what we're focusing on. And so for better or worse, um, it's finding the right investor that um, wants to think about the energy transition. Mm-hmm. So we've kind of, you know, we'll talk to anybody. <laughs> so we, we've talked to venture capital firms. We kind of started there, you know, green tech or climate tech investors. And what we kind of found out pretty early on is they're like, well, where's your patent? And we're like, well, we don't, this is not a patentable thing. It's a process. Yeah. I'm taking existing technology and applying it to the oil and gas space. Um, and so, you know, typical VC firms want to invest in a new widget, you know, a, or a new software program or something. And they want to see something that's going to, have a 10x return in two years. Well, so we're a resource power producing company. Um, we're like a we're like a a wind farm or a solar farm. That's not going to get you a 10x return. However, it's going to get you steady um, steady rates of return for 20 to 40 years. So it's just a different different type of investment model. Okay. So yeah, we talked to plenty of venture capital firms. They're always like, that's a really cool idea, but that's we don't really invest in that sort of thing. <laughs> so we've also talked to private equity, um, and those have been pretty good conversations, um, and we're still ongoing. We're about mm-hmm. a third of the way funded in our seed round. We've had success with angel investors, and really um, where we find is most important is that if you have somebody that understands oil and gas or has some sort of background in oil and gas, they instantly like get it. Mm-hmm. Whereas explaining to someone who's never doesn't understand oil and gas at all, they just think it's risky. They don't understand. They don't, I mean, for better or for worse, oil and gas is difficult to understand for some people, you know? So, yeah. so it, it helps to have an investor that's already sort of um, aware of it. And, and then you can tell your story much more effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But we'll talk to anybody. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting. So you're still producing hydrocarbons if they if the well will give them. So you you basically end up with two revenue streams one way or the other. And I that's pretty interesting, correct? I mean like yeah. you're not shutting off the oil, you're not parsing it out in some weird way. 
Yeah, no, that's another thing where we've been talking to ESG investors and they're kind of like, you know, they're, they're specifically focused on renewable energy investments. They want to help, um, they want to help climate change. They, they have these strong goals and we're like, yes, but also we will be producing a little bit of hydrocarbons. And they're like, well, then I don't know, you know, so there's some investors that don't want anything to do with fossil fuels. Um, so we've run up against that a couple of times, but yes, there, so there will be revenue from two different sources, probably you know, less and less as oil yeah. is eventually flushed out of the way or there isn't any, any left in the wells. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, honestly, we've been kind of running it as a, a way to handle OPEX costs. Um, so uh, it's, it's a nice revenue stream, but obviously not something we're focused on. Mm-hmm. We're looking at wells, um, you know, indistinguishably, if there's oil revenue, great. If not, um, we're a power producing company. That's what we're focused on. Okay. That's pretty cool. So yeah. From the ESG, talk to us about, because this is an ever-evolving topic as well, especially from the investment side. We It came from the investment side, really. The money dictated it. You know, we needed to check several boxes, but there's no official scorecard. Uh, people put out their ESG ratings, but who the heck actually knows where that what that means right now? So how can you explain to us, just at the basic levels, how this is helping the ESG initiative people need to stop focusing on the oil that's produced. I mean, how, how is this really making it a full circle, smart, earth-friendly investment? Yeah, um, I think there's a certain subset of investors that really want to put their money towards good. And they think good is, you know, in ESG, environmental social governance. They they want to do something with their money that they think is going to help the climate or, mm-hmm. or help people. And I'm, you know, fully supportive of that. So what we're trying to say is, you know, we are recycling, reusing oil and gas technology, um, personnel and, and resources and capital that was spent in oil and gas. And we want to transition those existing assets in, into renewable energy uh, producers. So I don't like I, I threw the term, I use the term throw the baby out with the bathwater, but it, it's true. You need to think about where the world is today. And if there are ways to utilize existing technology or existing uh, well bores that were drilled by oil and gas companies, why not take those and, and do some good with it? Good in terms for an ESG investor. <laughs> Keep it going. Why not? You already have the infrastructure in place. So Exactly. On surface, actually, that leads to a really good question. How much uh, change is happening? Because when I've seen geothermal facilities, I mean, they look extensive. So how is that changing? Are you are you scrapping old oil field surface relics or are you able to reuse them? How how is the operations changing up there? Yeah, so the basics of oil and gas production is still the same, right? You have three phase or maybe two phase flow coming out of the well bore. Um, and before it hits the separator, we are attaching these modular geothermal power units. Okay. So you can buy these off the shelf from multiple different vendors. Um, there's some in the United States, but mainly in Europe. So this is a very common um, technology used in in Europe, it's thermal heat or thermal heat waste, and they just convert that to electricity. They're actually, you know, quite a bit ahead of the United States in terms of, you know, renewable energy investment and goals. So um, you take these geo- modular geothermal power units and you can put them in series. They're about the size of a large refrigerator up to the size of a shipping container. Mm-hmm. Kind of depends on what sort of megawatts you're going to produce from each one. 
So you just pipe the fluids coming out of the well bore through these and you put them in series. And so it depends on the temperature of your water, how many you put in series. There's about a, we calculate a 10 degree drop between okay. each unit. Um, so until it drops to about 150, then you can't really make much electricity out of it. And then it goes into the separator. You separate, separate out the oil, gas, water, and then the water will take it to a leg um, through a, a water treatment plant, which is really basically filtration because we're just going to okay. inject it again yeah. um, into the same formation. So it's much like, you know, an old water flood. I mentioned that before, mm -hmm. but it's very similar technology, except right before it goes to the separator, we're going to take the, the thermal heat off of it um, mm -hmm. and spin some turbines and create electricity. It's a pretty simple idea. Of course, the execution is not always as simple, exactly. yeah. <laughs> but it's good that I can explain it simply. So that's good. <laughs> no, I love it. So Let's switch to the business acumen side of that because that, I mean, that is fascinating, but you also decided to uh, start this, what, end of 2019, really jumping on 2020 officially and the world went to hell. So for all of those oil field entrepreneurs, how's it going? <laughs> like in terms of finding your Yeah. Team, so we thought, oh, March would be a great time to get started on fundraising. Uh, <laughs> we attended the NREL's National Renewable Energy Laboratories Investor Forum. And that was at the end of April. And that was, you know, March was about where we all started to hunker down at home. And um, so we had our first virtual investor forum at the end of April. Um, which, you know, it's like commonplace now, everything's online and we have Zoom calls and we do that, but, but you know, it's a bit weird asking <laughs> or, or talking about your company and trying to build a relationship with, with someone when they're on your laptop, right? Exactly. You miss the human touch, being able to shake someone's hand. Um, so that's been interesting, but yeah, uh, summer was a bit slow, but things are picking up. Um, it's interesting that it, a lot of people though, they weren't, I don't know, traveling was a little bit weird this year, but it, a lot of rich people were still traveling <laughs> this summer. So it was hard to like pin down people to talk to, but things have really picked up. Um, but yeah, it's just, it, it was interesting. As you know, with Zoom calls, you see what a person's home looks like, I right? And so you'll, head syndrome. <laughs> yeah. So you'll talk to like these venture capital guys out of Boston. And for instance, we had this one call where he, every call we were on, he had his towel hanging on his, um, on his closet. So just like weird things that you pick up yeah. are like, you're, you're going to give me millions of dollars. Yeah. I can see the towel you just used to take a shower with. Yeah. It's just an odd, odd time in the world, but, um, yeah, we've all been adapting. So it's been all right. Yeah. So how are you spreading the word then? I mean, obviously the podcast, but like, how are you getting the word out about this initiative and putting yourself in front of the capital, given the lack of human touch, as you mentioned? Yeah, I think it's just like entrepreneurship would be at any time. It's all based on your network. So, um, so there's four members of the transitional energy team and we have a combined 71 years of experience in oil and gas, um, environmental consulting, banking, uh, mining, finance. So we have spent a lot of time at a lot of different companies and known a lot of different people. So that's useful when you're starting a company because you call people up and say, hey, I got this cool company that I'm working on. Do you know anybody who would be interested? And then that call leads to another call, leads to another mm -hmm. call, right? So um the mechanism, the basic mechanism for raising capital for a company, I think is the same. It's just your meetings are on your laptop at home. 
Uh, instead of at a boardroom exactly. in whatever city. Well, I like that it's the, the traditional touches are still working one way or the other. I mean, the Zoom portion is unfortunate because, you know, you kind of lose the enthusiasm, but you, you got to see people get excited and then they're just able to be stoic on Zoom and you're like, good Lord. <laughs> yeah, we had it. We had a couple pitches where we had to wear masks because it was in person. And that's even more difficult, right? Because it's hard to have much expression when you're just looking. Anyway, so yes. (laughs) How did your team actually form? You said uh, someone had an idea. They had had, I forget what you were telling me, X amount of experience. But like, how did you actually start finding the right people? Because sometimes you start teams and you realize like two weeks in, you're like, oh, you know, this is not going to work. <laughs> so how did y'all start picking the expertise to actually get this off the ground? Yeah. So the two um, co-founders are an engineer and geologist. Um, and so they were thinking about uh, Selena Derisweiler is the CEO and the COO is uh, still got a full time job. So <laughs> I won't out that individual, um, but hopefully not for soon because we're going to get uh, funded. So oh, yeah. um, those two folks were really interested in starting a company. Um, like I said, the kind of the waste streams, the profit streams idea. And then what they were really lacking is they needed, uh, you know, the financial experience and the power marketing experience and also the understanding of the regulatory landscape, because believe it or not, it takes longer to permit a geothermal well than it does an oil and gas well in most places. So understanding the regulatory framework and um, that piece of it was really important. So I I joined the team as kind of bringing my engineering Mm -hmm. and reservoir expertise, as well as understanding regulatory uh, environments, particularly when it comes to Colorado, but also across the U.S. And then um, uh, Kimberly joined us, Kimberly Eckert, she joined us um, for many years experience at Deutsche Bank and um, also doing some mining finance. Um, so, and she did some power marketing also. So kind of bringing all of those um, expertise together has really been helpful. We also have an advisory board um, that includes some folks from uh, the National Renewable Energy Lab that are focused specifically on geothermal because we understand, though we know how to produce hot water out of the ground. We also need to understand the geothermal side. So, and we have some entrepreneurs on our, on our advisory board. So yeah, luckily we haven't, we've been getting along, you know, you never really know. (laughs) I love it. Exactly. No, I mean, it's such a process. A lot of people tend to think, well, I'll just start it with my buddy here. And then you kind of realize we're better friends, not coworkers. So what has y'all's brainstorming sessions been like? You know, you had this one idea, but you really had to, as I say, an idea means nothing. You have to put energy behind it. You have to turn it into something. So how are you building your business plan? What were some of the non-negotiables you, you kind of realized as you went along the way? You know, what were people asking you as you were putting this company together that ultimately helped shape you guys? Yeah, we've certainly tweaked things as we've uh, moved along. I think um, helping convey what is risky and what is not, um, Mm -hmm. because there are certain subset investors that are like, well, I want zero risk. And you have to say, well, there's not zero risk, but what we're truly, what we're doing is pretty, pretty damn low risk (laughs) (laughs) compared to a lot of investments you could make, right? Everybody needs power. So it's pretty easy to talk about the market opportunity. We all need power. Our lights are all on, right? Um, And so trying to convey, uh, trying to convey an investment opportunity that doesn't sound risky, I think was something we uh, learned along the way. I think, um, 
you know, finding the right investor fit has been important. And we've spent a lot of time, you know, just hashing that kind that out because, because transitional is, you know, it's not an existing market. There's not really an existing market that has been utilized um, for this type of technology, at least successfully. So, so, you know, just learning how to talk about that in simple terms. And then kind of, like I said, you take a, you know, oil and gas is, is not easy to understand for everyone. And so how do you break down reservoir characteristics um, (laughs) to a guy who lives in Silicon Valley and has only ever programmed before? So, you know, how do you explain that as simply as possible? Uh, We've been learning how to do that. That's interesting. So were you ever an entrepreneur in one way or the other before you jumped into this one? Because this, I mean, this is big. This is definitely an idea that can, as you said, it's not an existing real market yet. I mean, you are really defining it. So where did this entrepreneurial spirit come from? Great question. No, I, um, I've i always wanted to start a company. I never knew exactly what I wanted to do. But I remember talking to my husband probably five or six years ago. And I was like, you know what? I should invest in geothermal leasing. Like I should just know where the hot water is coming out of the ground in Nevada and like lease people up. And then someday it'll be developed. It's much like mineral leasing, right? I was like, you could do the same thing for geothermal leasing. So honestly, looking back, I've always kind of thought about doing geothermal energy. Um, and then when this opportunity, and to be honest, you know, 2020 is not a great time to be <laughs> looking for a job in oil and gas, right? So when there was an opportunity to make a pivot to use my skills in an industry that I think is only going to grow, um, it was kind of a no-brainer to go after. That's awesome. So you think the transition between oil and gas to geothermal, I mean, having the discussions we have had, it, you're right, it does seem like a no-brainer, but um, some people are still holding tight to oil and gas right now when the market is expected to continue to consolidate for at least the next two years. So you think the geothermal space is going to be a, a good pivot for those potential individuals? I think there's a lot a lot of people are really hoping for that. Um, I really hope for that, but I don't think there's going to be enough growth in geothermal to absorb the amount of job losses that have happened in oil and gas. And I truly hope oil and gas comes back. I think it will. I think it'll just take time. I mean, I still love oil and gas. Not to the scale. Sorry, what'd you say? Not to the scale. It's going to have some sort of long-term impact. We're not going to see these like 500 head companies anymore We're. I think it's going to stay either the majors or just the small guys and only be a few of the small guys, honestly. Yeah, I would say that's a fair prediction. I think that makes sense. I've seen lots of articles recently, Bloomberg yeah. and Financial Times saying the exact same thing. So um, I do think there is there is an urge and people want renewable energy, right? People are paying extra on their bills because they want their electrons to come from a wind power farm out of Wyoming mm-hmm. instead of a natural gas plant that's way closer, right? So there's there's a need for it. The customers want it. So I think it's figuring out how we can rapidly deploy geothermal energy to, to solve that problem. And I think oil and gas folks have, have 90% of the skills that they need in order to transition it. But I don't know. There's a um, geothermal entrepreneurship organization out of UT Austin. Uh, Jamie Beard uh, is running it, I believe. And she put on a Pivot 2020 conference at the end of 
it was in July. It was the first of July. We were a panelist on it. Selena was a panelist on it. I think you can look it up on YouTube. But her whole her whole thing was like, how do we transition oil and gas workers into geothermal? And how can we get a bunch of entrepreneurs to start a bunch of companies to get geothermal, you know, out there and get oil and gas workers back to work? And mm-hmm. and I think it is a great idea and I hope it works. But I think there's I was looking today, they released um it was an infographic that showed how many people are employed by each like renewable energy group. And there's only like 9,000 geothermal employees in the United States. And they're, and only gas is laying off like 10,000 a week or something. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's just not a market big enough to absorb all the oil and gas expertise. I hope it grows quickly, but I mean, realistically, I, I don't, I don't think it can take on all oil and gas workers. That, I mean, that's a fair prediction, but at least the skill set is there. And if it could in some capacity, I mean, that would be awesome. So I am curious, um, just kind of going back to that, though, the, the idea of we need to start all of these companies and all be entrepreneurs, not everyone is an entrepreneur. Um, some people are <laughs> some people are good with their nine to five, so to speak. Um, but that kind of leads me back to the difference between you know, you got to have grit. You got to be able to find your angel investors, your seed investors, second, third round, just on and on and on. You always have to be on. You always have to be selling. So when you guys started that process, what was your experience with the initial investment and then moving into seed or second round or whatever you want to call it? I mean, how did y'all navigate that being new entrepreneurs? Yeah, so um, I would say the the two co-founders of the company, this is their second go around at a startup. They were, um, they weren't the founders of the previous startup, but they were like second or third employees, right? So they so they've been through this cycle before. Um, uh, yeah, it takes grit. You get told no a lot, or that's nice, but no, thank you. Um, and so I think you just got to learn that like, not everybody's going to like you and that's yeah. fine, but there's always someone else to talk to that. And, and I think if you truly feel excited about what you're doing, the drive for that, um, is, is really what keeps you going. Right. I, mm-hmm. I'm really excited about the opportunity here, opportunity space. And I think if you just keep, focusing on that and realizing that, yeah, you're going to get the crap kicked out of you occasionally, but that's just part of life. Um, and if 2020 has taught you nothing, right, we're just going to roll with the punches here and <laughs> we're going to get through this and it's going to be awesome at the end of the day. That's, I mean, that's so cool. So we're, let's say in five years, this new space that is transitional energy, not alternative, not traditional, transitional energy, where do y'all predict this growth? Um, I mean, how are y'all scaling? How do you think it's going to impact the other slices of the pie? Yeah. So, you know, our goal at, at Transitional Energy is truly to be a power producer. So we plan to own, you know, multiple oil and gas assets, mm-hmm. um, kind of well fields, and yeah. we'll be We'll be creating electrons and selling it to the grid. Um, we want to be a power producer, a long-term power producer. There might be an opportunity to, you know, sell to Excel Energy or sell to a BP or something. You know, yeah. never say never. We're open to everything. But I truly, we want this to be a sustainable um, uh, electrical producer for the grid and and utilizing existing resources. Well, electricity is definitely a 
game changer for every country out there, for women and education, for opportunities. I mean, you can't do your homework in the dark, so to speak. So everything that you guys have been building to create this, this market that is transitional energy, this reduce, reuse, recycle idea of the oil field, while still supporting the oil field, I think is absolutely killer. So I cannot wait to see where you guys go. I know we're coming to the end here, but tell me a book, podcast, or other resource that has been beneficial to you that you would encourage someone else in oil and energy to partake in. Yeah. So um, we, one of our early conversations with an investor, he suggested um, this book called uh, Lean Startup. And so being new to starting up companies, I was like, what is this thing? And it was a really good, um, it went through a lot of companies and how they started and how getting as quickly as possible to failure or success is important. So um, that was interesting because if you, you come from an operator standpoint, um, that's not necessarily your goal, yeah. <laughs> but as an entrepreneur, it is. So that was really interesting. And then uh, speaking of podcasts, I've been listening to this podcast for years. It's called Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. And it just Ooh. like profiles a bunch of uh, female entrepreneurs that have started companies across all sorts of industries. And there's always something really interesting or a nugget you can get out of it. And when you talk about grit, man, all those women have a ton of grit. And it's just like, <laughs> there's no, there's no giving up. And so that's what you just, you learn from that. Um, but yeah, I really enjoy that podcast as I do yours. I really like your podcast. Thank you. so, yeah, those are, just, those are a few I can suggest. That's so cool. Well, Joanna, this conversation has been so uplifting. As I said in the beginning, I have been calling for Mavericks. I've been saying that, you know, the old ways are no longer an option. We need thought leadership. And I think you and your team are bringing that to the oil patch. And that is why I'm so excited for people to hear this episode because it should encourage people to say, you know what, this seems small, but there is a huge opportunity here. So thank you so much for creating transitional energy and the space that is transitional energy. I can't wait to see what you guys do. And, you know, if you got any tips and tricks along the way, I encourage you to tell everyone. <laughs> will do. Yes. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. And I will talk to you soon. Okay. Sounds good.